We are in the uh, middle of a, live, a year of living life well here, if you're here for the first time, where we're looking at some practices that Christians throughout history, throughout the world, have kind of adopted to help us follow Jesus. Uh, and we're at the end of uh, celebration, the practice of celebrating, choosing to celebrate in our lives. And as we begin, this is the last week of the celebration bit, uh, as we begin, we're going to watch a video. And what I want us is a very short video. What does this video do to you as you're watching it? And then you're going to discuss it with the people around you. What does this video do to you? Let's watch it together. video do to you? Just where you are, the person next to you, what emotions does that create? I guess that for some of us, we love that. For some of us, if when we get to that stage of life, we're still like that, wouldn't that be amazing? As of us, we look at it and think, if only, <laughs> if only I had those kind of moves, but also if only I had that sort of joie de vie, that sort of sense of zest. I'm just exhausted. Uh, and others of us might laugh at him and thinking, never in a million years would you catch me like that. And others of us, if we are candid, will think, actually, that doing that sort of stuff is a million miles away where I feel at the moment. We live in a culture, don't we, that loves to celebrate. We've got the sort of quotes that go on our fridges, and we see them on our social media timelines, like this from Oprah Winfrey. The more you celebrate your life, the more there is in life to celebrate. Or this one from Prince. Instead of hate, celebrate. Or my favourites from Jurgen Klopp. Life is too short not to celebrate nice moments. And of course I'm hoping as a Liverpool fan that in the next few months there will be nice moments to celebrate. We love that. Those kind of celebration. Come on, live with a... Bounce. Mark was talking earlier about social media and presenting that sort of, yeah, yeah. And it looks good on Instagram, doesn't it? Uh, but we all know that those sort of quotes can be very hollow. They're nice trinkets that might give it a little bit of a lift every now and again on Facebook. But when life is not like that, those can seem jarring. The other, not that long ago, I was walking in an evening um, dark, wet, miserable evening on a road, and I walked past a bar, and inside the bar was this party, and it was a busy road outside, and all I could see, you couldn't really hear the music in this bar, I could just hear the noise of the road and the rain and the misery, but I could see people dancing, and it was a juxtaposition, that sort of sense of, what do we do when in life, we don't hear the music. How do we celebrate when we can't hear the music? It doesn't fit with where we're at. This practice of celebration that we've been looking at, I want to suggest, is one of the most challenging throughout this year. 
It's all very well if life is good to celebrate, but choosing to celebrate the good things that God has done, is doing, will do, the good gifts he has for us, choosing to celebrate those in the middle of life and its complexities is a huge challenge. And at the end, there's going to be an opportunity for us to respond, to pray for each other, to have prayer. And in this bit of the Bible that we were looking at, there's two contrasting acts of celebration that I think has lots to teach us about how to celebrate when we can't hear the music. And the first is an act of empty celebration. I don't know if you picked it up as it was being read. Now, I want to be honest about something this morning. little insight into sort of my brain. Planning a series where you're looking at things like celebration, what you do, you kind of look through the Bible and you think, brilliant, here's one where David, King David, is celebrating. So we'll put this passage down as the celebration one. Great. And then when you come to actually look at the passage properly, I don't know if you picked it up as Andy was reading. This is far from straightforward, this passage. You've got people dying because they touch the ark. What on earth is going on? The backstory of this is that King David and God's people have just defeated their enemies, the Philistines. They have won a great battle. And so we've got sympathy. They're celebrating the brutal enemy has been destroyed. Yeah, why not celebrate? That's what they're doing. Did you notice? They're celebrating with all their might. They are going for it like that guy on the dance floor. They are really hammering it because they've beaten their enemies. Why not? What a party. But it's not just because they've won the battle that they're celebrating. There's something else. Did you see it? He, King David, and all his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God which is called by the name. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And as Andy said, this, is, this Ark is important for God's people in the ancient world because it represented God's relationship with his people, the very presence of God back at the center of their nation. Wow, no wonder they are celebrating. We would be. But within a matter of verses, this great party turns to sadness, grief, anger. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died because of the ark of God. David was angry. Talk about a DJ emptying the dance floor. What has happened? This supreme celebration ending in death and anger and fear. How does it happen? Well, we saw. What they did, they were carrying the ark and they put it on a cart. And Uzzah does something that we would all naturally do. The cart begins to tumble. What does he do to protect this ark? He puts his hand out. And the passage refers to that as being an irreverent act at which God kills him. What? And for some of us, this sort of passage is just the reason that we're not a follower of Christ. This sort of seemingly irrational act where God, this supposed great God, 
does something that we think is awful. Well, I want to suggest that maybe, just maybe, we need to understand some of the context to really get a grip on what is happening here to God's people. On the surface, we miss it because it seems a trivial act. He's just put his hand out to balance it. But when we explore what's really going on, we see what is at the heart of empty celebration. There's three major things that have gone wrong for God's people here. We won't go through all the Bible passages, but you can explore it at your own if you'd like. But the first is this. God has been belittled. God's people have used the ark as if it were a lucky charm, wheeling it out in battle like a voodoo doll just to beat the enemy because it's magic. This ark guarantees for us what we want. It's our little trinket around our neck, our little good luck charm, rather than the very presence of God treated with reverence and holiness in our midst. They've belittled God. They've domesticated him. They've made him to meet their needs. Major thing number one. Not only that, major thing number two, do you see the way that they're carrying it? Now, I don't know if you got from the picture that Andy put up earlier. The ark had these kind of poles. But do you notice what they're doing? They set the ark of God on a new cart. Not only have they belittled and domesticated God, they have clearly disobeyed what God says. When God makes the guidelines about how to carry the ark, he is very, very clear that they should carry it on poles because this is something holy. It needs to be done in the right way. And where did they get the idea of the cart from? Well, the Philistines... Their brutal enemy had stolen the ark. And when they stolen the ark, all sorts of crazy things happened because this thing is amazing. This is holy. And so what do they do to get rid of it? They put it on a cart to send it back. So not only are God's people domesticating God, using him as some sort of lucky charm, they're also adopting the practices of God's enemies as their way of supposedly worshipping God. Major deal number two. And of course, the next logical step, having done all of that, belittling God, making meet my needs, not doing what he says, but rather choosing how I want to worship, because it's all about what I do. And then, of course, what happens? Uzzah then simply disobeys. They're clearly told they should not touch the ark. And of course, that journey of disobeying God is one that is so common in the Bible. You remember that ancient story in the Garden of Eden? You've got this amazing, beautiful creation, and God says, but just don't eat the fruit from the tree. And what do they do? They start with questioning God. Did God really say? And then they begin to sort of, well, surely you won't die. They doubt him. And then, of course, the next logical step is to then eat it. It's this journey. It doesn't start with just touching the ark. It starts with belittling God. I'm in control of him. I'll do it my way, thank you. And, of course, that leads to complete disobedience. That journey is one in which we make God 
about our needs. Simply, familiarity breeds contempt. God is the little genie in the lamp that if you rub it the right way, boom, all our wildest dreams are met. And this kind of celebration is something that hits home. If you're anything like me, it could be praising Jesus when all is good. But the moment something doesn't go how I would want it to go, hmm, how dare he? He's there to meet my needs. That's empty celebration. It begins with celebration because my needs, I think, have been met and then suddenly it goes awry. That's empty celebration. Us using God for our needs, for our means. Uh, but of course, that's not how the story ends. The difference between empty celebration and lasting celebration is clear. Do you see the two stories? One begins with celebration, ends in death. The other begins in death and ends in celebration. David's response second time round is telling, and again, we miss it because we may not know the context. David naturally freaks out. How on earth are we going to get this ark back? This is incredible. I can't even touch it. What, what, what on earth is going on? And so the second time round, David goes up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom. When those who were carrying the ark this time, not on a cart, okay, Big tick, number one. Uh, taken six steps, what did he do? He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So they do what God says, they carry it, and there is a sacrifice made because this holy God, they can't just touch and be close to. There's a sacrifice made on their behalf so that access to God is given. Not only that, though, do you see what David is wearing? Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. He's taken off his royal robes of status and instead got his linen ephod, the kind of thing the priest would wear. And do you see what's happening? This beautiful picture of suddenly they had no access to this holy God and now because a sacrifice is made by a priest on their behalf, they now have access wide open to this God who is holy and can't be touched. No wonder David is celebrating with all his might. God is in the midst. That's worth celebrating. I love this quote from author Brennan Manning about grace. Because all of this is because God gives them access. God calls them in. And grace calls out, you are not just a disillusioned old man who may die soon. A middle-aged woman stuck in a job and desperately wanting to get out. You're not just a young person feeling the fire in your belly begin to grow cold. You may be insecure, inadequate, mistaken, or pot-bellied, or all of those. Death, panic, depression, and disillusionment may be near you, but you are not just that. You're accepted. Never confuse your perception of yourself with the mystery that you really are accepted. A sacrifice has been made by the great high priest on your behalf, Jesus himself, 
so that the way is open for us to come before this holy God who can't be touched, but he steps in on our behalf. That's worth celebrating. That's good news. But someone's not happy, are they? Did you notice David's wife is fuming at what goes on here? And we read these words. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. <laughs> Look at what she says. You can imagine this little domestic going on. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants. This is not just his servants. This is the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. That's not the behavior of a king belittling himself, she says. And I just want to dwell here for a moment as we sort of begin to come into land. Because if you've been around church circles, this passage in the sort of 90s was used quite a lot to talk about dancing and joy and celebration. Anyone remember this song, just out of interest? I will dance, I will sing, to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering the passion in my soul. There's a few of us remember it. With that line, I'll become even more undignified than this. Some would say it's foolishness, but I'll become even more undignified than this. And that was at a time where there was a sort of shift from traditionalism to saying, no, this is good news, be free. Uh, great, fine, that's, that's really good. Joy, fantastic. But I all know that for some of us, that kind of thing is terrifying. I want to set free the introverts this morning. Just because David leapt around, it doesn't mean we have to leap around. In fact, I want to suggest that's not the point of the passage at all. And conveniently, people who use this to say you should be dancing forget the half-naked bit. But anyway... <laughs> But some of us will resonate with this cartoon. <laughs> some of us in a church context will look at people who are quite exuberant in their worship of God and think, what? Others of us will look at people who are quite exuberant and think, boy, I'm not like them. And others of us who are quite exuberant in our worship, will look at others and think, you should be like me. Might I suggest that all of those are missing the point. This is not about how to celebrate before God. It is the sheer fact that we can celebrate because God has made a way. And what's telling as we come to a close is the reason for David's celebration. Did you notice at the end, after this little domestic David responds, and his words are telling. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in honor. Do you see what David says? I was chosen by God. I'm called by him. 
And therefore, I'm choosing to listen to what he says about me, not what you say about me, Mikhail. I'm choosing to believe his words about me rather than what things have been said about me, whether they be ridicule, whether they be criticism. I'm choosing to believe God's words about me, not what has been said over my life. And as we come to a close, as I was preparing for this, I really sense that some of us need to be reminded of what God says about us, not what has been said over your life. And that here, there are things that are holding us back from choosing to celebrate because we've believed what people have said to us or said about us behind our backs or even said over our lives. And so as we come to a close, I'm going to read out, if you like, a list, a kind of prayerful list, in which there's an invitation for all of us to hear what God might want to say to you and to me. And we choose to accept that rather than the lies that have been said about us or to us or over us.